Remember the old preacher used to say, he said, uh, the reason why so many churches can't honestly sing onward Christian soldiers is because there's too many conscientious objectors in the pews. <laughs> Amen. I'm glad to be saved. I'm glad to be a soldier. And I pray that I'm a good soldier. I turned on. Now, whatever you think about um, America or the uh, military, if you go back to, uh, like, say, World War II and that, uh, America struggled in a number of battles initially with Germany. And uh, when you consider that you're able to correctly judge a military by its music, by its music, and obviously we were not for Germany and the Nazis and all that, but you know what they were listening to back in the barracks when they were training? Germany. Here it is. You got a maniac lunatic for a leader, Adolf Hitler, and the Third Reich, and they're back there, and they're listening to Mozart, Vivaldi. They're listening to Bach and Beethoven, and they're doing daily marches. And you know what the United States was listening to? A bebop, a loobop, a wah, all that stuff. And I'm telling you, if it weren't for the grace of God and God doing what he does best and controlling countries and, and all that stuff, uh, Germany would have shredded us like they did in the first dozen battles. And I say that because when I look at our generation today and I look at the music, uh, uh, if you want to look at it secularly first, it's ridiculous. It's not even music. Uh, what it is, it's a tribal thing. Now, if you want to take a step into Christianity, and if you were to accurately size up Christianity as a whole, um, our music has degraded down to nothing but a bunch of praise and worship songs. So if you wonder why Christianity as a whole, uh, and I know some of you know this inside and out, struggle, struggle with the fight, has to do with our music. Not the message I'd like to preach. And I take your Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. But your music, your music determines what kind of soldier you will be. Nehemiah chapter 9. When you find it, I'll have you stand just for a little bit. Stretch your legs. I'm going to read some of the chapter. I won't read the whole thing. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Now, this whole thing on music here, uh, in my teens and that, uh, I haven't always liked the best of music. And for a number of years, I struggled with listening to the wrong kind of music. And for what it's worth, uh, the old preacher helped me get a hold of what music really was. And now, uh, leaning towards 50, uh, I'm very, very uh, conservative. And I keep leaning more conservative in my music. That's why um, I'm not here to blow smoke, but that's why I like our song leader. Our brother Cole, he has a good sense about him, and he picks out those songs. And whether he knows it or not, amen. <laughs> and what he does is he often picks a lot of the songs that when we grew up, we only sang them 
as invitationals. But man, there's a mountain of truth in those old songs and those hymns. Enough about me. Let's see what the Bible has to say in Nehemiah chapter 9. The Bible says in verse 1, Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, with sackcloth, and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one-fourth part of the day. Get a hold of that. <laughs> Four hours or three hours. And another fourth part they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Joshua and uh, all right, stop there, and I want you to come over here to uh, verse number 20. 20. What happens between where I just stopped there and verse uh, number 28 is they're given a history lesson of how good God's been to them. So there's preaching going on, and they're given a great history lesson of the nation of Israel, and they're just going on about how good God's been and how God's put up with them and how God's had to put it on them, Amen. And God's had to restore them and bring them uh, out of the pit and all that stuff. But look at here, verse 28. But after they had rest, talk about Israel, they did evil again before thee. Kind of sounds like the Christian life, amen. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times did thou deliver them according to thy mercies. And testified against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. That's Old Testament salvation, by the way. And withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifiest against them by thy spirit and thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee, that hath come upon us and our kings and our princesses, a princess, princes, sorry, <laughs> and our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria, unto this day, howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turn they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us. You see what Israel's doing? They're recognizing that the situation and the mess they're in is that what they did, and, be, and it's a punishment. <clears throat> and God set those kings over them. He says, whom thou hast set over us, because of our sins, also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle 
at their pleasure and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it and our princes, Levites, and priests, seal unto it. Great day for the nation of Israel here as they're all gathered together. They're all, I don't know if you can see the picture in your mind. They got earth all over them, a bunch of, bunch of dirt balls, right? Sackcloth, pouring out their hearts to the Lord. They spent three hours, you know, kind of like our Sunday morning. Take about three hours start to finish, you know what I mean? And uh, they're just trying to get a hold of the Lord here. So with these thoughts in mind, Brother Micaiah, would you ask the Lord to bless preaching? Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Now, of course, if you look at this from a 30,000-foot view, what you have here tonight is a great recipe for revival, a great recipe for revival. And uh, I want to encourage you to begin to pray for our revival meetings in April with Brother Dennis Knowles. Uh, not only is he a good friend of mine, but he's a good preacher. He really is. He just, he's, he's uh, now he pastors in West Tennessee, as you know, but He's just Alabama simple. He really is. And he's a real blessing to be around. He has helped me as a preacher. He's my friend, and, and I think he, I know he'll help us when he's here. And when I found out that uh, my daughter wanted him at part of the wedding, I said, okay, there you go. He's coming, so he's going to do a couple days of meetings for us. So you pray about that, and I appreciate that. And if you have anybody at all you're thinking about inviting, that'd be a great time to invite. It'll be Sunday, all day Sunday, and then Monday night and Tuesday night, and we'll get them on their way. Now, here's a great recipe for revival, and I know I don't have to say this, you understand it, but what our country needs is revival. It really does. And it's too easy as a Bible believer, we know history. It's too easy to look at this country and say, you know what? It's all shot to pieces, and we're absolutely right, it is shot to pieces. But what this country needs is revival, and revival is what you and I need. It's what you and I need. Revival is a bringing to life that which is dead. And a good number of Christians, while they're, they're practically dead, though they're spiritually alive. Does that make sense? good number of Christians are. And that might be you tonight, I don't know, maybe... Uh, May, I know you're here, and that's a blessing. I'm glad you're here. But listen, I don't believe we'll ever see the national great awakening like this country did back in the 1700s and 1900s. There's too much distraction. There's too much entrance for evil spirits, and it's everywhere you go. I mean, the great awakening that came in with Whitfield and Wesley, and as a nation, we're talking now, that thing closed with Billy Graham. But that doesn't mean we can't have revival here. Amen? Now these places, amen, all places all across the country, they're saying they're having revival. Help yourself. Help yourself. But that doesn't mean we can't have it here. That doesn't mean God can't stir us up here and it stirs us up so much that it just kind of gets out into this community. Now don't be discouraged. You look around and see just a handful of people here. Listen, these are the last days. And this is the gleanings. And we've been uh, feeding sheep now for 10 years. 
Amen. And you say, well, what's your, what is your business plan moving forward? We're going to feed sheep. We're going to keep feeding sheep. Amen. And there, let me tell you what, we uh, got a letter in the mail the other day for some, uh, some people that used to go here. They're sweet as pecan pie, if I could say it like that. And they found a church a little closer to their home. And you know what they did? They just was thinking about us, and we were on their heart, and they sent us a check. Now you, how do you suppose they did that? How do you suppose they knew that what we were going through here were that well? See what I mean? You never know. Never get the idea that because somebody leaves here that they must be out of the will of God. Amen? Never think that. Now, if they go out wrong, well, that's a different story. They'll answer for it the judgment seat of Christ. They don't answer to you and me. Amen? But never get the idea that when somebody leaves here that this is the only place they can get fed. This is one of many places somebody can get fed. But here's a great recipe for revival, and our country needs it. And although I doubt we'll see it, doesn't mean we can't have it here. Amen? <clears throat> doesn't mean you can't have spiritual revival in your own life. Now listen, before the Lord can revive us, that's Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. He says, and after two days thou shalt revive us. Of course, talking about the nation of Israel. If you look at the Lord's day, that's 2,000 years. Amen? A day with the Lord is 1,000 years. After two days, that'd be 2,000 years. Talking about Israel, thou shalt revive us. Amen? But practically speaking, before you and I can be revived as a church, you know what has to happen? Well, first of all, in Psalm 138.7, he has to revive me personally. Psalm 138.7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. So who needs to be revived? I need to be revived. Me. Your preacher needs to be revived. You sitting in the pew need to be revived. But before we get a revival here in this church, you have to be revived individually. Amen? It's not something you just snap your finger and it shows up. You say, well, why are you preaching this now? Well, I reckon now is a good a time to preach about revival than any other time in the world. But not only that, uh, if I'm going to be revived, you know, uh, that includes my heart. It's not just the stirring up of the emotions. I mean, we can all get worked up if we find your favorite whatever sports team or program. You can get all fired up about that. That's not a revival. <laughs> but our hearts need to be revived. And you find that in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, where the Lord says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So my heart needs to be revived and he needs to revive my spirit in the sense of my attitude. So I'm saying as a whole, before God revives this church as a whole, uh, whatever you're looking for, he's got to do a work in us first, individually. And that has to do with your heart and that has to do with your spirit. And then finally in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, of course he's talking about Israel he gives a promise that he will revive the work. You know, it's funny to me, Christians often when they think about revival, you know what they're really thinking about many times? They're thinking about a thriving work where the doors are packed and the parking lot's full and ministries abound and everyone has a position and everyone has a title. You know what my position is? Food thrower outer. And then you know what your, your position is? You're one with him. You're a son of God. 
you're a child of God. It don't get any higher than that. Why would we seek to, to get some gain some kind of position down here, man? You're already one with him. You see what I mean? A lot of people think revival, they think of that thing as a revival of the work. Well, God didn't necessarily design that. See, what sometimes we get a hold of is we get a hold of the, the gleanings of church history back in the Philadelphia church period when or Moody's church or Sankey's church or Spurgeon's church where it filled up and it burnt down and they built it twice the size and they filled it up in thousands and there. They weren't in Tower City either. Amen? You realize if everyone was here in the city limits, we might have 4,000 people on July 4th. On September 1st, half of them go, go south. Amen? We have a very large building, and I'm sure the Lord has a plan for it, and the plan for it is to keep doing what we're doing. But before he revives the work, before he revives the, the church as a whole, he's got to revive us individually, and that begins with our heart. And that begins with our spirit. I, with these thoughts in mind, I want to give you these principles for revival. They're good for any day of the week. Amen? These principles, revivals, and the first principle of revival I see in the text of this chapter today, it's a tough one. <laughs> it's not an easy one. And it's one that I have to get back to myself. First of all, the first principle of revival I see here is I need to get familiar with fasting. I need to get familiar with fasting. Now, you preach this on a Sunday morning, and they'd probably get about the same response. Just like, right there it is. When you talk about fasting and not eating food, why? In, in one essence, in our society, eating is almost, one preacher calls it idolatry at the dinner table, right? A lot of times, uh, we kind of worship the things we like to do. But in the passage here in verse number 1, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, it says. Remember, they're trying, they're doing everything they know in their power to get a hold of Jehovah God. And the first principle here, you want some principles for revival? Well, you're going to have to reacquaint yourself with fasting. All right? I'm going to have to get familiar with fasting. A fasting gets God's attention when done the right way. One preacher said, Fasting doesn't make you spiritual. He says, fasting makes you hungry. <laughs> Look at Isaiah 58. I'll show you this. I don't know how far we'll get tonight. Isaiah chapter 58. <clears throat> but you and I need to get familiar with fasting again. Now, there's a balance to all this. We're not looking to go back into the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Josiah? I'm not looking to go back into the ascetic view of the Roman Catholic Church where you starve yourself or climb up on a pole and sit up on a pole 30 feet in the air, like Simon the Stylite pole sitter there, the fraternal order of pole sitters, and not eat and starve yourself. We're not talking about uh, asceticism, but we're simply talking about getting familiar with fasting. Now, in Isaiah chapter 58, notice here in verse number 3. Now, if you want to learn about fasting, you should start at Isaiah 58. It's the definitive chapter in the King James Bible on fasting. Verse 3, the Bible says, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore we have afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge. You see that? Takest no knowledge. They're fasting to get a hold of God. Then it says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labor. He's chewing them out. Verse 4, 
Behold, you fast for strife, right, and debate. Like they throw these, uh, they throw these idiots in prison, and they say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat. I'm like, well, do us a favor. We're tired of paying the taxes on you anyways. <laughs> but, but that's what he's saying. You fast for strife. You fast for debate. And to smite with the fist of wickedness. You got Nelson Mandela when he was back in prison. He wasn't going to eat. I'm like, let him die. Biggest terrorist out there. And uh, he says, you shall not fast as you do this day. Here it is, to make your voice to be heard on high. A man, when he fasts for the right reason in the right manner, you've got to have some balance. You've got to make sure your body can handle the thing. You don't start out with a 21-day Daniel fast. You start out by skipping a meal and praying and asking God, to, you know, trying to draw close to the Lord. But fasting gets God's attention. Over in Acts chapter 10, verse 30, you've got Cornelius. He's a lost Gentile. You know what he does? He fasts for four days. You know what that did? That got God's attention. There's a Gentile that wanted to know more about the Lord. He fasts for four days, and you know what he does? He sends a Jew along, Peter. Four days. Back in Daniel chapter number 9, you see Daniel fasting, and the Lord's dealing with Daniel. He's fasting again in Daniel chapter 10 for 21 days. And you know the stuff that God gave Daniel after that fast? Men for a thousand years still can't figure that stuff out. They can't. You ever try to get Daniel's 70th week all nailed down and, you know, all that stuff and all that stuff in Daniel 9, 10, 11, 12? Man, that stuff's heavy. But I'm telling you, when you do it the right way, it gets a hold of God. And, you know, I'll give you a couple more things. Look at Luke chapter 2. You ever stop and think that uh, fasting is a way that you can serve the Lord? <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought, you know. I go, okay. We're going to serve the Lord with, no, it says gladness. Yeah, we'll serve the Lord with fasting. Well, don't you know someone was in the temple in Luke chapter 2, serving the Lord night and day with what? Fasting and prayers? Well, preacher, <laughs> that's the Old Testament. Okay. So Psalm 23. Luke chapter 2, look at verse 37. I'm saying fasting is a way that you can serve the Lord. 2.37, Bible says, and she was a widow, about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You want to know why she was so old and still going, as strong as she was? Fasting. Now, I'm not here to tell you about the health benefits, but there's a lot of health benefits with fasting, amen? How about this one? Uh, fasting is a way to serve God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, let me give you this one. Fasting is a part of the ministry. You're going to serve the Lord as part of the ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse number 3. Verse number 3. Paul says here, giving no offense in anything that the ministry... So the context of this passage is the ministry. The ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in what? There it is, fastings. You want to be an approved minister of God? Get acquainted with fasting. It's a way to serve God. It's a way to minister. 
it's a way to be a, a proved minister before God. I'll give you the last one here, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, while you're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, these principles for revival, they'll help you. They really will. Why? Because it's so dry outside. As soon as you walk out the door, you're faced with the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you gotta have to, you got to have some of these things constantly on your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verse number 27. Now, this is where Paul is all his, where he was beat half to death, you know what I mean? He says, in weariness and painfulness and watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness. I don't know about you, but when I read that, to me, I perceive that the fastings were not always voluntary. Now, if you and I are going to fast, it'll be voluntary, <laughs> right? You say, what are you going to say about this one here? Well, doesn't the Bible say in 2 Timothy 2.12 that if we suffer, we'll reign with them? Isn't this a list of Paul's sufferings? You want to suffer for Jesus Christ? Maybe it's time we get a hold of the concept of fasting every once in a while and maybe learn a little bit about suffering. What did you get before the judgment seat of Christ? And the Lord says, I see you. I'm not trying to make you a Pharisee here tonight. Pharisee said, I fast twice in the week. What if you get up before the Lord and says, I know you couldn't get out much, and I know you did the best you could, but you fasted and you prayed for your church, you prayed for your missionaries, you prayed for your neighbors, and they didn't know it, but I knew it, and I sent someone over, and your neighbor got saved, and you get the credit for it. You see what I mean? That's a way to suffer. That's getting a hold of fasting. Look at Matthew chapter 17. I'll give you something else here. Not only does fasting, when done the right way, get a hold of God, you need to get familiar with it. But notice this thing in Matthew chapter 17. The Bible intimates that the fasting can increase your faith. Matthew chapter 17. Verse number 21, he says, how be, it, how be it this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And he's dealing with that uh, fellow there, and he couldn't get the, the devils thrown out of him. And he says, how be it this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. You ever stop and think that probably one of our problems as Bible-believing Christians is we desire the maximum amount of result in the Christian life? out of the minimum amount of effort. So I say, first of all, in these principles of revival, I need to get a hold of, I need to become familiar with fasting. Now, don't, don't kill yourself for crying out loud. Uh, <laughs> please don't. But you're going to have to have some balance on the thing, but it wouldn't hurt. It could only help. Now, if you want to get all geeky about it and say, what do you know about fasting? I actually know a great deal, although not at this moment. <laughs> I know a great deal about fasting and the health benefits. But I'll tell you this much about fasting. When you can control this appetite, there's something to do with that physical appetite that really puts the reins on many other appetites in your Christian life. Does that make sense tonight? If you can control this appetite right here and not always respond when this thing talks to you and lies all day long, then it puts everything else under wraps. Now, that doesn't mean it fixes it. I'm just telling us if you're fasting on a continual basis, it helps you.
The one appetite seems to control all the rest. Well, let me give you the second one here in verse number two. Not only do I need to get familiar with fasting, but I need to be solid in my separation. Solid in my separation. The Bible says here in verse number two of Nehemiah chapter number nine that Israel separated themselves. Now listen, as a Bible believer, Bible-believing Baptist, you and I need to be solid in our separation. That means we need to make sure that we're not waffling on it. Amen? It needs to be solid. Uh, they, one fellow was hiring truck drivers a while back. The illustration goes, and he interviewed three people, and there was a dangerous curve on a high mountain. And he said, I want to hire you, and I want you to take this load of brake drums, and I want you to go around this curve. And I want to know, candidate number one, how far you can get to the edge of that mountain before you go off the edge. And the fellow said, I could get about six inches. The guy goes, man, that's pretty sinking close. I don't know about you going down south and you start getting wedged in by them semis and driving and just, just I don't know, start to freak out, amen. So candidate number two comes in. He says, I want to know how close you can get to that precipice before you'll lose that $100,000 load and lose everything down, including your life. And he says, oh, that ain't nothing. I've been driving 25 years. I can get three inches from that edge. And the guy goes, my goodness, how in the world could you do that? You can't, I mean, you can't even think on three inches. He gets the last guy, and the last guy is kind of a middle-aged fella. He says, you're up against some stiff competition. I want to know how close you can get to the edge of that precipice before you lose your life and you lose the load. He says, well, he says, I ain't very smart, but I'm going to stay as far away from the edge as I can. <laughs> he says, you're hired. <laughs> That's what we do with our separation sometimes. We see how close we can get to the edge. After all, I've got liberty, you know what I mean? Not the insurance, <laughs> but liberty in Jesus Christ. So don't tell me what to do. Don't count yourself, right? You go ahead and you get as close to the edge as you can. And when you go off down the mountainside and lose your testimony and lose the, everything God's given you at that time, you'll be wishing you stayed a little bit farther back. But you're going to have to be solid in your separation. Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Very familiar passage. Paul was a great evangelist. He was a great missionary. And he had won a number of the Thessalonians to Jesus Christ who started that church there. Amen? And notice he's bragging on them here in verse 9. And he's, just, he's really just uh, really impressed with how they have done. And notice what he says. He says in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, that's the greatest testimony anybody could ever have. And for whatever reason in Christianity, it seems to be our testimony is not how we turn to God, but yet it's how weird we can get in separating from the world. Amen? Now listen, that's the other part of the coin. Separation is twofold. And I believe you all know that. But the main part of your testimony should be that, hey, you know what? From the day that I got saved, I have turned to serve God and I turned away from them idols. <clears throat> so the first part of our separation is you have to turn to God. It's just like in John chapter number 3 and verse 30, he's, uh, 1 and verse 30, <coughs> excuse me, John the Baptist says he must increase. It's got to be about him before you make it about something else. So that's the first thing. That's the first side of the coin, as you know. And, of course, you don't have to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, 
saith the Lord. Now listen, Paul is talking in 1 Thessalonians to brand new converts. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he's talking to carnal Christians that should be established by now. You see the difference? Our separation must be towards God first. Look, if you don't have every conviction hammered out, amen, and the brethren aren't all pleased with you, praise the Lord, that just makes you an individual, doesn't it? It really does. But why don't you just go ahead and with your separation be solid towards the Lord. You turn from the idols in your life and you're going after God. Give Him time to work on you so you know how to separate from the world. Too much preaching today in fundamentalist circles is all about how you should just separate from the world and we've stopped preaching separating yourself unto God. Well, I need to be solid in my separation. I've got to go on number three here. Here's you find this in verse number two in Nehemiah chapter nine. I need to be current in my confession. Current in my confession. And you find in Nehemiah chapter two and verse number two, you find them standing and confessing their sins. Wouldn't that be rich? If culturally that's how we did it, man. Ain't that something? You find them standing, confess. I'm just saying, you need to be uh, you need to be current in confessing your sins. Everybody knows the verse, First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you current on your confession tonight? I hope you are. It's a blessing if you are, and if not, you can be before you leave. The thing about confession, I'll give you just a couple things on confession. First of all, you need to confess your sins immediately. Immediately. You say, why? You got a bad memory. I don't care how young you are. You don't confess it immediately, guess what? You're going to forget about it. But there is one who doesn't forget. Amen? The Lord doesn't forget when you sin. Now when you confess it and get it under the blood, he forgets it forever. But you need to confess your sins immediately if we confess. So when you sin, man, just stop what you're doing and confess it immediately. (laughs) It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. That's what I said and I shouldn't have said it. (laughs) I thought that thought, I should never have thought it. Not only that, but you confess your sins immediately and then you confess your sins specifically, specifically. Uh, don't go to the Lord and play games with God, amen? If you sin and you did something specific, don't say, oh, Lord, uh, you know that thing I did there? Name it. Name it, nail it at the cross, and never go back to it again. You say, but I've done that a hundred times. It doesn't matter. The mindset and confession is you nail it down, you name it, and you say, God, don't ever let me go back there again. You confess it immediately. You confess it immediately. You confess it specifically. And here, you confess it confidently. You say, why? Because he's given us the promise of forgiveness. He says in 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess it immediately. You confess it specifically. And you confess it confidently. Take your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter number 4. 
very familiar verse. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16. Bible says here in Hebrews chapter 4 and number 16, he says, he says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. And the reason you do that is, is given next, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what? When you confess your sin, you go to the throne boldly. You don't go sheepishly, even though you're sheep, a sheep. <laughs> Amen. You go boldly. You don't go boldly because you deserve. You go boldly because you're a son of God. Sons use the front door. Amen. Sons know the password. Sons don't need a mediator like Mary. They've got Jesus Christ, your big brother. Now you, uh, you go there boldly, amen. And you need to confess your sins. Confess your sins confidently like David. Remember David when that old preacher got up there, he said, Thou art the man. How'd you like there to be an illustration? And David, out of, out of fellowship with God, was still more spiritual than most Christians. Amen. But here's Nathan. He's telling this story, and David's following because David's wise. Amen. He's still a man after God's own heart, even though he's messed up. He's had uh, an affair with a woman that wasn't uh, his wife and responsible for killing a man uh, he shouldn't have done and tried to cover it up. And then old Nathan goes, thou art the man. Oh, you talk about being nervous in the service. You know what David says right after there? He says this in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. Well, what a stark difference from what King Saul said. Saul said, the people, the people, uh, the people. Adam said, the woman. <laughs> David said, I did it. That's me. Yeah, I'm that dirty dog right there. I have sinned. You know, another one that you find there in the Bible that was confident about coming and confessing was the prodigal son, Luke 15. Interesting part about that passage, always, always been a head scratcher to me. Luke chapter 15, verse 17, the Bible says, And when he came to himself, he's in the pig pen, he's in the hog pen. When he came to himself, I'm thinking to myself, where'd he go? Haven't you ever said this? Well, they are just out of their mind. You see that? And then the King James Bible comes right around and says, And when he came to himself. You ever come to yourself over a situation, you're like, oh, yeah, about that. But notice he, he comes to himself in verse 17, verse 21. The Bible says, And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's pretty confident, isn't it? That's pretty bold, isn't it? Well, you need to be current in your confession, giving you some uh, principles for revival. Uh, our revival meeting is not until April. But still, some great things for you to think about tonight. Here's number four. Back in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse number three, uh, a principle I see here is you need to be busy in this book. You need to be busy in this book. The Bible says there in verse three that they stood up in their place and read in the book. 
They stood up in their place and read in the book. You and I need to read it regularly, amen? You need to read this Bible regularly. Paul told Timothy, and it's applicable to you and me in 1 Timothy 4.13, to give attendance to reading, reading. We're a generation of images anymore. We don't read, but you need to read, and you need to read that book regularly. You need to read it. You need to study it steadfastly. Study it steadfastly. 2 Timothy 2.15. If you're not a studier, all you can do is start. Just start. The hardest part is opening up the book. The hardest part is getting everything around you to shut up for a while. We've got so many things in action. We've got so many things engaged. Have to learn to throw it out of gear and put the brakes on and Get mad at yourself or get mad at your house, whatever. Just shut everything down and open that book and read it. And then open that book and study it. Study it steadfastly. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. And how about this one? You got to learn to memorize it meticulously. Boy, this generation has thrown that in the trash can, haven't they? Our generation knows nothing about memorizing the Bible. There was a thread of memorization when I was a child going on still. But now, where's it at today? There are people all across Iosco County and Aranac County and even counties surrounding that used to attend the Awana programs and whether or not anybody agreed, it doesn't matter because the Bible was being memorized. Thy word have I hid in my heart. How important that is to memorize that book uh, in the old timers back in the 50s and the 60s, it's funny we call it old timers, it's not very long ago, amen. They would memorize the book, they would memorize chapters, they'd memorize portions. When they had boys' homes and girls' homes, they'd have everyone memorize passages and chapters. Why? So it would stick. So why should I memorize the book? Well, the Bible says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. How in the world are you and I going to speak as the oracles of God if we don't read it? He can tell whether a man reads the King James Bible or not by how he talks sometimes. You ought to be so full of that book that it just kind of comes out. The phraseology we use. When you come to certain junctures in your life, passages, verses, phrases ought to pop. Why? Because you put it in there. You put it in your heart. Well, you ought to, you ought to memorize it meticulously. I just quoted the verse so you won't sin. Amen. If nothing else, it'll help you stay clean. Got a problem with sin? Memorize the book. Got a problem with your mouth? Nope. <laughs> Not me, preacher. Got a problem with your tongue? Got a problem with your eyes? Got a problem with a lazy foot? Got a problem with a, you fill in the blank? Get you about five or six verses, write them down, memorize them. And when you take time to spend time with the Lord, start quoting them in your prayers. Not out of habit, but because you, you believe it will work and you want the Lord to do something. How about this? Not only so you won't sin, but how about this? Can I say it like this? We're in the country. Uh, not So you memorize it so you won't sin and memorize it so you won't be stupid. <laughs> Amen. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, If thou receive my words, hide my commandments with thee, and then it says, So that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom. You realize if you don't learn to store that book in here, it has to come up here first and slowly dig down, you will be stupid. Amen? 
You memorize it so you won't sin, and you memorize it so you won't be stupid. Amen. That's good preaching. And how about this one? You, you memorize it meticulously so you won't send out the wrong message. You won't send out the wrong message. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that lieth within you. That is in you, rather. I've had it happen to me several times. She said, what? How stupid. I had someone come talk to me, ask me a question. And, uh, hey, uh, how you doing today? Oh, the weather's nice. No way to go. Way to go. How you, how you doing today? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I could have said something about the Lord. I could have given an answer to the hope that is within me. You say, what are you doing? You're just giving the wrong message. Who cares about the weather? I get you got to break the ice sometimes, amen? You say what you got to say, you get to know a person, and actually if you're going to try to win someone to Jesus Christ, many times, if not all times, you'll have to win that person over to you first before you introduce them to the gospel. I understand that. But you ought to memorize it so you won't sin, you won't be stupid, and you won't send out the wrong message. Let me give you another one here. Back in Nehemiah chapter 9, some principles of revival. If you want to know why we don't have revival in America, this pretty much spells it out. Verse number three, number five here, I need to be well established in my worship. Well established in my worship. Verse three, the Bible says, they stood up in their place and worshiped the Lord. You say, what is worship, preacher? Worship is the act of paying divine honors to the Lord Jesus Christ, consisting of adoration, confession, prayer, and thanksgiving. Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 21, if you're going to worship God, it'll be done in spirit and in truth. I believe you could honestly worship the Lord if your motive's right reading your Bible. You worshiping Him in truth. You worshiping Him in spirit. You need to be well established in your worship. I'll move on here, number 6 here. Look at uh, back to verse uh, number 36, Nehemiah chapter 9. I need to be sold out in my service. Sold out in my service. We gave you the numbers last Sunday morning, I believe it was. It's six hours of preaching a week, max. And sometimes I only preach 45 minutes, you know. But it's uh, six hours probably of service for a, week, uh, a week. But yet your week is 167 or 68 hours long. Someone do the math. I think it's 167 hours in a week. Ain't that something? That's one half of a percent. You say, what are you saying? You need to be uh, sold out in your service. Are you sold out tonight? Are you sold out to Jesus Christ? Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. Look at that just for a minute here. Are you sold out in your service? You know, one reason you ought to be sold out in your service is because he promises you rewards. That's a good motive. That's a good business motive in this world. You want to make more money? Go scratch a little harder for it. You know why ain't nobody scratching hardly, it seems, because the government too busy giving stuff away. And too many generation after generation of mamma and papa trying to take everything they got. Well, you're going to have to learn to work. You don't work to get saved, but if you, you want to get rewarded, well, you're going to have to lace up your boots and get after it. 
Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 24. The Bible says, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You see it? That's who you serve. You're not serving the church. You surely ain't serving me. You're serving the Lord. How about this one? Look at Galatians chapter 5. Talk about being sold out in your service. You need to learn to serve the Lord. Now, other than that, you need to learn to serve other Christians. Serve other Christians. Remember that hymn writer said, there's joy in serving Jesus? And sometimes you just wonder if he's really telling the truth or not. <laughs> but the more you serve the Lord, you have no problem serving others. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13. The Bible says here, Paul says, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So we serve Jesus Christ, right? We know that. We serve it because not only does it pay eternal dividends, but because we love him. But then you serve one another. That's a hard thing. I wonder why there's no revival in our churches in America. Everyone's serving themselves. I mean, you go into McDonald's, self-serve. Going to the gas station, self-serve. Going to the church, no serve. Now, I'm not getting on y'all here tonight. You know what I'm saying? I'm making an application based upon our society. But I need to be sold out in my service. And how about this one? Serving not only Jesus Christ, serving one another, but serving in the local church. I'll give you this one, 1 Timothy 3.15, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God. There it is. That's serving in your local church. You realize when you serve the Lord, all service in the church age begins with the local church. There's no Christian in your Bible that was not part of a local church. None at all. You have to make it up for it to exist. Let's go on to the last one. We'll be done here in verse number 38. <clears throat> not only sold out in my service, but how about actively in agreement with God? Actively in agreement with God. Verse number 38, the Bible says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites and priests, seal unto it. He said, what's this whole thing about being in agreement with God? Have you ever just asked yourself, do I agree with God or what? You know the verse in uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed. That's a great verse I learned as a kid. Man, there's a whole mountain of truth. Of course, the answer is absolutely not. So are you walking with God or are you walking by yourself? What you're doing, how you're living, what you're living for, is it in agreement with God? In agreement with God in my walk? How about in agreement with God in my work? Matthew 20, verse 2, the Bible talks about how he sent them into his vineyard. Does God agree with what you're doing for him? These are great principles for revival. And finally, in agreement with my ways. Agreement with my ways. Look at Proverbs chapter 16. And we'll close on these thoughts here. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter number 16. 16 and verse number 7. The Bible says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. 
Now, look, I understand the, the context here. You've got a millennial, you've got a tribulation millennial context here. But the idea is this. Uh, is God agreement with how I'm walking, how I'm living? He says, when a man's ways please the Lord, do my ways please the Lord. All right, <clears throat> what kind of ways? How about earthly ways? You know, Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. And how about eternal ways? The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And yet over John chapter 14, verse 6, you know what Jesus Christ says? I am the way. Are you following Jesus Christ? Now look, we know that this world is on a rocket ship headed for hell. And we know that before the thing plunges into the, the abyss, that the Lord's going to get us out of here. But we don't have to go dead as a stick. And these principles, although uh, they might seem a little bit disjointed, but they're all connected. I mean, the fasting one alone, <laughs> it'll change your life. <laughs> Amen. It really will. I'm not saying go crazy. You've got to be balanced. You know what I've been guilty of? This is a confession time for years and years. Is just being so goofy one way. And well, God's got to be in control of you. Make sure you go right down the middle where he wants you to do. But when he reveals truth to you like fasting, it does you well to consider it. And the other things fall in place. Now these are not a checkoff list. They're not a duty list to punch. But rather, they're just rock-solid biblical principles. You know what they're designed to do? They're designed to put you down and lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And within the closeness of the relationship and the sweetness of the fellowship, you find new life blossom out of a desert. Listen, during the week, face it. Sometimes it's as dry as cracker juice. But you know what the Lord wants to do? He wants to revive us out of that mess. He wants to give us that extra step. He wants to give us that extra glass of fresh, cold water like good news from a far country. Well, let me ask you the final question. Are you willing to fast? Are you willing to separate unto God and stop making it all about being separate from this world? You know I didn't tell you not to separate from this world. But Christians, they don't like... They, can I tell you it like this? The easy part is to make yourself look different. Because then they go, oh, what church do you go to? I notice all your girls, they're in jean jumpers today. <laughs> well, praise the Lord. Like my preacher friend says, he says some Bible believers, they took that whole thing about separation and they made it like, let's see how ugly we can make our women look. Are you willing to separate unto? <laughs> That's funny, come on, amen. <laughs> if it needs paint, get some paint. Are you willing to separate unto God? How about your confession? Have you confessed lately? Has it been a while? Maybe could you afford to spend a little bit more time in the book? That whole thing on the book, I've got a little bit of a new outlook on the book because hopefully uh, as more we read, we should be able to increase our speed and comprehension. So now I'm trying to give the Lord time blocks instead of chapter blocks. 
especially when you get into the Psalms. You could knock out a handful of chapters like, oh, great, yes, let's go. I just want to give the Lord time. You know, if the Lord, you give the Lord time, he'll multiply it back. How long has it been since you honestly worship God in spirit and in truth? How about your service? Are you in agreement with God tonight? Just some principles of revival. Hopefully it's a help. If you don't need it, put it away and pull it out later. Amen. All right, why don't you stand? We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.